to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. already had a power outage. I don't want to go without it. How about now? Got it. Perfect. Okay. Now I don't have to yell. My name's Jason. If you're new around here, and uh, like I said, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm part of, uh, if you're not, if you're new around here, you don't know this, but we have a teaching team uh, of several of us who uh, stand up here on Sundays, and we carry the bulk of the weight of teaching uh, these passages of Scripture to you and delivering these sermons, and we all kind of rotate and share that task. And I often wonder, is it just me, or is it, does it seem like that I'm always the one who winds up preaching the controversial verses in the Bible? Um, it feels that way sometimes, uh, to be honest. You know, it's like, wives, submit to your husbands. Here you go, Jason, have that one. And, uh, but... But to be honest and, and really serious with you guys, uh, I wanted to start by saying this, because you just heard that scripture. How about now? Yeah. yeah, it's the plug. So I will keep an eye on that or something. <laughs> um, or was I? Oh, you just read the scripture, right? And I thought about it, and, I, and uh, in light of what we learned last week, I wanted to say this. I don't think that's a controversial scripture at all. And here's what I mean by that. If you uh, were here last week, you know that there is a context for that. And I, I want to also say this. Don't get me wrong. I'm well aware that there is an unfortunate history among uh, Christians and among churches that for generations even, for many, many years, uh, have liked to use certain verses in the Bible as kind of like weapons to put women in a certain position, right? Uh, some people will use verses in the scriptures to say that women should have a lesser position than men should have, uh, that they should have a lesser authority than men should have and should not be leaders in certain uh, scenarios. And I'm aware also that there are many critics of Christianity who sort of stand outside of the church and they look at verses like that and they say, see there, the church wants women to be second-class citizens. They don't want them to have any kind of leadership or authority. And I've heard all those opinions. I know them very, very well. I've heard both sides. But whenever I hear someone say anything along any of those lines, 
I know one of two things. I know either A, A, it tells me that they have not read the entire Bible in its context, and B, it tells me that they probably haven't spent a whole lot of time getting uh, to know Jesus. Because if you have, then you probably understand that those verses don't mean what a lot of people might tell you that they mean. And, as I said earlier, if you were here last week, you heard Ed talk about uh, some of these verses in context. And here's what we know. What we just read is from a verse in the Bible. It's called Ephesians. Uh, it's actually a letter that was written by a guy named Paul who started this church in the first century in the city of Ephesus. And he spends the first half of this letter, and he just reminds uh, the brothers and sisters in Christ who they are. This church, he reminds them who they are. And by the way, we've been learning for the past several months, this is who we are. And who are we? We are dearly loved children of God, right? We have been adopted into a new family, a family where all uh, walls of hostility, walls of separation, all of those things have been torn down and done away with. We are all one in Jesus due to his death and resurrection. And we, are, uh, we have this new identity in Christ, we said. So then he turns, uh, Paul turns his attention in the second half of the letter, and he says, let me teach you how to live in that new identity. And specifically, what he's talking about in this section that we're looking at today is how do you live out your new identity in your relational world? And he is going to talk about several uh, relationships that we often live in in our lives. And Paul's one big overarching message, as we learned last week, is there is this thing that we all need to live in in relationships. It's called mutual submission. Remember last week we talked about it, that verse where he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission. We talked about this last week. Mutual submission simply means this. It means that I, I am humbly placing other people above myself. I place you, your needs, what you are about and what you need, before I focus on my own. I, I love you in that way, and I submit to you in that way, and we do this for one another. And so Paul then says in verse 22, he says, now I want to talk to you about some specific ways that that works out. Wives, you should do this for your husbands. And you need to understand when he writes that verse, it's not a separate idea. He doesn't say, now wives, let me just tell you something. You are below your husbands. He makes all decisions. He tells you what to do. That's not what Paul's trying to get at here. He's saying it in the context of mutual submission for one another. It's an application of the idea that he first introduces in verse 21. It, and actually, I've, and I've talked about this in other sermons, I just wanted to bring it back up. Uh, if you don't read and understand the Greek language, you don't know this, but here's a quick Greek uh, lesson. When Paul wrote this uh, original verse in the Greek language, did you know that the word submit does not appear in verse 22? It's not even there. In fact, there is no verse uh, verb in verse 22. It literally reads this way. If you were to read it in Greek, it reads it like this. Wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. See, there's this thing in, in the Greek language. Uh, when you write it, you have the ability to borrow verbs from other sentences and import them into the idea that you're writing about. And that's what Paul does here. He imports the verb out of the previous verse, and he brings it into the current verse. So he starts by saying this, and we've been learning this also in this series. He says, you, and when Paul says you, it's not you, it's y'all, right? All y'all, remember that? So he says, all y'all, all y'all should be submitting to one another. And then he turns and he says, so if you are a wife, do that for your husband. 
Then he moves on later in the passage, and he goes, and if you are a husband, you should be doing this for your wife. But when he talks to the husbands, he actually, I believe, ratchets it up a little bit. He says, let me tell you husbands what this looks like practically. In verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loves the church. He's not saying in this verse by saying, husbands, love your wives. Oh, by the way, that submit thing that I was talking about, you don't have to do that. He's, again, carrying the idea all the way through. He's borrowing that verb all the way through this entire section. He's not saying husbands don't have to submit. In this first century culture, Paul actually is making one of the most radical upside-down statements about marriage that had ever been written up until that point. See, in this culture, women were... For, better, for lack of a better term, they were almost considered to be like property for their husbands. If you're a woman in the first century in this culture, you could not divorce your husband. But if the husband got dissatisfied with his wife in their culture, you could divorce her for any reason at all and just send her away. In this culture, love in a marriage, it was a nice option. I'm not saying that there weren't loved, uh, they were all loveless marriages in the first century, but it wasn't a requirement. It was kind of a, Nice thing if you could get it, but if you didn't have love, it just wasn't a big deal. There was more to it than that in their culture. They just didn't see that the way we do until this moment. Paul steps into the middle of that culture, and he says, let me tell you what Christian marriage is based on. He says, Christian marriage is based on, first of all, mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Self-giving, self-sacrificing love. That's what Christian marriage is all about. The same type of love that Jesus has shown for his children, for his church, for you, and for me. This is the kind of love and submission that gets shared within a Christian marriage. So when you read these verses, here's what you ought to think. When the women of the first century in the town of Ephesus, when they were first exposed to this, these words, when they first heard them read, probably in a church gathering like we're sitting in right now, you know what they did not hear? They did not hear oppression. They did not hear words of domination. They actually heard words that were liberating. They would have thought to themselves, wait, wait, wait a minute. Are you telling me that my husband is going to love me like Jesus loves me? Are you telling me <laughs> that our marriage is going to be based on mutual submission? We're going to lay down our lives for each other? Are you telling me? We are equals. It was profound for them. It was liberating for them. This was the best news that the women of Ephesus had ever heard. And by the way, if anyone ever proclaims to you the gospel of Jesus Christ and it does not sound like good news to everyone who hears it, you ain't doing it right. The gospel is good news for everyone. It is not oppressive to some and liberating to others. It is good news for all. And it was good news for the women of Ephesus. And I think this is the beauty of what marriage can be when it is led by Jesus. It turns marriage from being this little tug-of-war relationship where I'm trying to get you to meet my needs and we're always trying to get our own way into this wonderful relationship where we, get our, we give ourselves completely to one another for the good of one another. My spouse comes before me. Marriage is not a competition for you to get something out of another person. Marriage is a submission competition. It is a competition to see who can submit more to the other. 
It's not how do I get my needs met? It's how do I meet your needs? And I'm telling you, when two people decide to live in a marriage like that, almost every problem in marriage goes away. It's solvable. In fact, I, I say this all the time. I, I have couples come to me for counseling. Nearly every couple who has ever come to me for counseling, the problem comes back to this. I need him to change, or I need her to change. And if they would just meet my needs, this marriage would be great. Now, I want to be crystal clear. I'm not saying that you ought to stick around and tolerate abuse, that you ought to uh, be a part of some, someone mistreating you and just take that. No, that is not mutual submission. That is not what you've been called to do on either side. Your home, your marriage, your relationship should always be a safe place for you. It should be safe for you physically. It should be safe emotionally, sexually, spiritually. And if you are, have not been made to feel safe in your relationship, you need to get out, you need to get safe. And we'll help you do that if that's where you're at, if you'll allow us to. But the thing I always like to point out about mutual submission in marriage, this is so great. God has never asked you and me to do something that he hasn't already done for us himself. God has not asked you to do something that he has not already done for you and for your wife or for your husband or for whoever you're in relationship with. And that's why it's so important. And this is one of the main reasons that we come and we gather. It is because we come to remember when the God of the universe decided to come and submit himself for us. He has already submitted himself to you. Jesus came. He endured a death on the cross. And that's why every week we remember it the way that we do. We take bread and juice and we receive communion to remember the body and blood of Jesus given for us on the cross. So we thought now to get a picture of submission so that our hearts could be turned that way, uh, we would receive the meal of communion right now in our service. So Ed's going to come, and he's going to lead us in that. As Jason already said, we're going to continue the study in this passage, but the cross is the greatest example of loving submission. In fact, Paul will write in another passage that it's Jesus coming to earth and not counting his rights something to be held on to but he gave himself up as our example. Imagine the God of the universe giving up everything he had, all the rights he had, the glory that he had, to step onto our planet, to give himself for us. Today we come together and we honor that sacrifice. I hope when you came in you received the elements. If not, they're right outside these doors. You can get some now if you want to, but if you don't believe like we believe, you shouldn't feel obligated participate, but I do want to encourage you to stay engaged through all of this. Maybe during this time, you could offer a prayer to God and ask him, how do you get to know him better? And I believe he'll make himself real to you. But before we receive the elements, what I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you to pause and reflect on how we're doing at submitting ourselves and our rights to others. And if you're married, particularly because that's the passage today you should think about your spouse. Paul says that out of our, our love, our reverence for Jesus, we too submit. We follow his example to give up our way for the sake of others. So how you doing? How you doing at submitting yourself to your wife, your husband, 
out of reverence for Christ. To lead us in this time, uh, I, want to, I want you to read with me some words that Paul writes to a different church. In fact, it's the words that I've already sort of quoted, quoted to you, but I want you to see them as Paul writes them. We're going to put them on the, on the screen. I'll read a part, and then you read the part in bold with me. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, take a few moments. I want you to bow your head and ask God to show you where you fail to follow this command. What argument, what issue, what right do you hold on that you won't give up and you use it as power over others? What words or actions do you use that you're not looking out for the interest of others, particularly the interest of your spouse? Take a moment. I'll give you about 20 seconds and you talk to God about that. Let's bow together. Now, if you would, look at the screen again, and let's read again together. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature with God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Once again, I'll ask you to spend a moment before you partake of the elements and remember Jesus. I want to ask you to imagine, you use your imagination and think about what it would mean for you to have the same mindset as Jesus. Particularly if you're married in your marriage. But really it could be with any relationship what particular issue what particular right would you have to give up to follow Christ's example then ask God how he can help you see the right way to go about doing that and then receive the body and blood of Jesus to remember him and then our band's going to come and lead us in a song that reminds us the way but it's not about our power, it's not about our might. It's the Spirit of God working through us that allows us to build these kind of relationships of mutual submission to one another. So take a minute, consider what God would have you do, remember communion, and then we'll sing together.
Well, if you feel comfortable doing so, would you stand and sing with us? Well, I'm standing here with open arms And I'm learning where my help comes from And I'm singing like the battle's won I'm learning where my strength comes from Not by power, not by mind By the Spirit of God Up to the heavens I lift my eyes Fully surrender all of my life We have nothing to fear in letting go I'm laughing in the face of fear Cause your perfect love is with me to start we have to look to Jesus 
to understand and to receive the power and the example that we need uh, to submit to one another out of reverence for him. And so that's why I thought it was important for us to spend time with Jesus, to spend time looking at our example and our motivation for how to submit to one another. But I want to spend the rest of our time together, and I want to teach you some things. I want to teach you some practical ways that you can actually go and begin to live this out. So for the remainder of our time together, I'll just say to you, if you're here and you're married, what you're about to learn, if you would say, hey, I got a marriage, but I think we're doing okay, you know, we're doing good, then I would say, great, this is going to make you stronger. If you're married and you're saying, but we're struggling, we, we need some help, what you're about to learn, I think, could be the thing that might save your marriage if you were to put it into practice. And if you're single and you're thinking about marriage or maybe wondering, this is like gold for you because you get to start and not screw up the way the rest of us did, right? You get to start a marriage using strategies like this and, and take it from us married folks. It'll save you some work way down the road. But even if you're not in any of those categories, no matter who you are, what you're about to learn is just some good relationship skills to put in your back pocket that will really help you in your life. Uh, there's this guy, he's a psychologist, maybe you've heard of him. His name is John Gottman. Uh, and John Gottman has done tons of research. He's devoted his entire career to studying marriage and relationship issues. And he specifically, he and his team, they have studied what specifically they believe causes marriages to break down. They've thousands and thousands of couples. And they have discovered there are really four top things, four major things that they know if they see any of these four things existing in a relationship, that relationship is more than likely headed toward a breakup or at least some major trouble. He, he, he coined this phrase, he calls them, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That doesn't sound ominous, does it? But he said, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse when it comes to your marriage. And if you see them, you're in trouble. So these are the signs that a marriage is heading in the wrong direction. I'll put these on the screen. These are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And I'll explain those in detail as we go along, and you're going to see that in lots of different ways. But here's what's interesting to me is not only has this team identified the four problems that can wreck a marriage, they've also discovered that there are four simple antidotes to them. There are things that if you could begin to start doing them, the, these pretty simple kind of strategies, they will start to counteract these problems and they'll fix these problems. And the other thing that I have found interesting as I've learned these and studied these is when you look at these uh, problems and, their solu and specifically their solutions, here's what you'll find. They look a lot like mutual submission. In fact, I would say these solutions look a lot like Jesus. They look a lot like a person who will lay down their rights and their comfort and their privileges for the good of the other person. And I thought, wow, don't we need that? And so I wanted to spend the rest of our time, and I want to teach you about these, especially about their antidotes. So let's talk about criticism for a moment. What is criticism? See, criticizing your partner or your spouse, it's not the same thing as, as voicing a complaint. I mean, we need to voice complaints. There are things that need fixing. But when you uh, are criticizing someone, when, when, you're, when you're criticizing a person, you're actually attacking them and not the issue. 
See, when you, when you voice a complaint, you're just talking about something that's gone wrong. Criticism is someone who you think is wrong. When you go after someone's character, you try to dismantle who they are as a person. I'll give you an example. When you say something to your spouse like this, you know what? You're not just forgetful. You're just selfish. That's what you are. You, you don't think about me. You don't think about the kids. You don't think about anybody else but you. It's all about you. Did you hear those statements? They're not about a problem. They're about a person. They're about who they are. They're about their character. They're about the motives that they have. And I just want you to sit with that for a second. Ever talk to your spouse this way? Ever, ever, ever attacked not just an issue, you attacked your spouse? See, every time we do this, we leave our spouse or our partner, whoever we're, we're talking to, we leave them feeling assaulted and rejected and hurt. So what is the antidote to this criticism problem? Well, it looks like this. It's just a gentle expression of how you feel, a gentle expression of feeling. I'll, I'll tell you how it works. You pick an appropriate time, appropriate moment, when the temperature of your discussion isn't really high and, 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 and amped up, and you humbly and you gently, with some warm body language, with a warm tone of voice, you bring up a problem, and you don't talk about the other person. The best way that I know how to do this, and this is what I train couples to do all the time, is I say you've got to start by using what I call I statements, expressions of how you feel, statements of what you are feeling. I'll give you an example of what it sounds like. You say something like this. You say, honey, I was really scared when you were running late today and you never called. See, it was an I statement. It was about what I felt. Or you say something like this. You know, sometimes I... I feel frustrated when I see the dishes get left in the sink overnight. Do you think you could help me out and do the dishes tonight? Starts with an I statement. It's about how I feel. You start a conversation like that. You are not talking about a person. You are talking about an issue, and you're trying to solve a problem. Because, see, when you constantly criticize your partner, you fall into this pattern, and this pattern will spiral, and it will lead you down farther and farther and farther where you're both just attacking one another. And you keep spiraling down long enough, and here's what happens. You wind up with the next problem. So let's talk about contempt. Here's what contempt might look like. Sarcasm, cynicism, eye-rolling, name-calling, smearing, mockery, hostile humor, cutting arrows that you know will hit your mark because you know the person that's going to receive them. Have you ever seen any of this in your marriage? Did you know that out of all of these, contempt is the greatest predictor of relationship failure? Contempt goes way past criticism. When you criticize, you attack someone's character. But with contempt, you not only do that, but you place yourself above them. You are morally superior to them. Oh, you think you're tired? Cry me a river. I have been with the kids all day, running around like mad to keep this house going, and all you do when you come home from work is flop down on the sofa like a child and watch TV. I don't have time to deal with another kid in this house. Could you be any more pathetic? That's contempt. It's not just you're bad, it's a I'm better than you attitude. So what's the antidote? It's appreciation. The only way to kill contempt is by actively showing respect to your partner. It's finding their strengths, their positive qualities, and pointing them out. 
It's always saying thank you to your spouse for things that they do. It's finding opportunities during the day to speak compliments out loud to them. The way to challenge yourself in this area could be to commit to saying five compliments to your spouse every day. It seems like a small thing, but it's so huge. It's a form of submission and it keeps contempt from growing in your relationship. The next thing we need to protect against is defensiveness. Now, this is usually how we all respond to criticism. I know I personally put up walls, we try to make excuses, we put ourselves in the role of the victim, but defensiveness really is just an underhanded way of throwing criticism back in the other direction. It's actually blaming the other person for the problem and taking no responsibility or ownership of it. It's not my fault I forgot to call the insurance company. You know how busy my schedule is and how much I have to do around here. Why haven't you called them yet? So what's the antidote for defensiveness? It is to take responsibility. Instead of blaming and becoming the victim, accept your role in the situation and apologize for your part. Don't take the complaint personally. Again, we're dealing with a problem and not a person. It's not a conversation about you. It's two people trying together to solve a problem. You say something like, you're right. I should have called the insurance company this morning when I had time before I let my day get packed with other things. That's my fault and I'm sorry. I'm gonna do it first thing in the morning though. And here's the thing, it feels so right and so natural to defend yourself when you feel attacked and stressed out. But going on the defensive never makes the situation better. It always escalates it. Taking responsibility and owning up to your part actually de-escalates the conversation because you're putting yourself in your partner's shoes and seeing things from their perspective. You're taking ownership of your part and it draws you together with that person but defensiveness just pushes you apart. So that's three of the four. So let's talk about the final one that uh, Gottman and his team have identified, and that is, it's called stonewalling, right? Now what is stonewalling? Stonewalling is when you just shut down. You ever done this? You just kind of withdraw from the conversation because you're just done with it. You stop responding. You, or you maybe even say it. You just say, just forget it. I'm done. I don't want to talk about this anymore. It's just over. Or you do it subtly. You don't say it. You just act like it. You, know? you act like you're busy doing something else and you can't hear what they're saying. Or you just pick up your phone and you just start looking at your phone and as, if, as if they're not in the room. You know? You're just focused on something else. And I, and I get this one because a lot of us, we feel like we have some good reasons to tune out of the conversation. You start feeling too overwhelmed when you're having a discussion or you get too angry or you're just getting frustrated. And, and, and if, you, if you keep talking, you know you're going to say something you regret. And so you just shut down. So you don't say what you regret. But stonewalling is never the solution. Why? Because it cuts your partner out of the conversation and you don't work on a plan to actually deal with the problem and actually work toward a solution. So what is the solution to stonewalling? What's the different approach? It's taking a cooling off period. Now, that might seem a little bit like withdrawing, and it, on the outside you might look at it and go, isn't that stonewalling right there? But this is different. This is when you take a break from your discussion, but it has a purpose. 
See, instead of you withdrawing because you want to avoid the conflict or you want to punish your partner or you want to somehow subtly, passively, aggressively show them how angry you are and so you unplug. No, you too decide we need to take a break. We need to stop this discussion because it's going nowhere and we need to come back later. And so here's what you do. You make a plan. You, and, and I would suggest 20 minutes. Take 20 minutes at least and go away from one another and do something that is soothing and distracting for you. And I don't know what that is for you. Everybody's different. Maybe for you, it's you just need to sit and take some deep breaths so you can cool off a little bit. Maybe you need to sit down, lie down somewhere, relax your mind, relax your body. For some of us, you need to do something that distracts your mind. You need to read a book or take a walk. Some of you like to go for a run. It's really cathartic for you. Go do that for 20 minutes. But whatever you do, you do anything that stops you from feeling overwhelmed and frustrated with your partner. And then, after the 20 minutes is over, and this is the key, if you don't do this, you haven't done it. You come back together. You commit. We're going to come back together, and we're going to have the conversation again. But this time, we're going to be better prepared to start solving the conflict instead of spiraling it. For the sake of the relationship, we, pause, we press a pause button, but we make a commitment to come back when we're both in a better spot, and we work together. What you just see on this screen right here, this is what it looks like to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You take criticism, and you trade it for a general expression of how you feel. You take contempt, and you trade it for expressions of appreciation to your spouse. You take defensiveness, which we all like to do, and you trade it for responsibility for your part, and you own it. And you trade your stonewalling for an intentional cooling off period with a purpose for getting back together and solving the problem. Now, I want to say one last thing, especially to all the couples before we wrap this up. And um, I know this is not what people like me uh, are supposed to say. I get that. And for some of you, when you hear me say this, uh, it's going to sound really cynical when I say it. Um, I don't mean it to sound this way, and I hope you understand that it comes from a loving place, but... I felt like it was important to say. And here's what I want to say. Most of y'all ain't going to do this. And I'm not criticizing you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not coming down hard on you. I just know how people are. I know how I am. I'm in the same boat. Most of us come to church and we hear things and we get, we get training and we hear different ways of looking at things and we think, man, that's great. We ought to do that. And then here's what happens. You forget. In fact, y'all are going to go to lunch today, and if I were to sit with you around the lunch table and say, tell me what the four things are, you probably might give me two, and you'd be doing good to give me two. And I'd applaud you if you got two right. Wow, I'd be so excited. I did my job as a, as a teacher. But most of you won't even remember. You'll just forget because that's how we're built. That's just who we are. So I wanted to help you. I don't want you to forget. So... Here's what we're going to do. I want you to take your phone out. I'm serious. And you scan that QR code. Here's what you're going to have. You're, it's going to take you to a, a site that actually has the four horsemen on a page, really creatively done. It's really artistic. And the four antidotes. And when you get that on your phone, you could take a screenshot of that. You can save the link if you want to. Send it to your partner, your spouse, or whoever it is. And you can say, hey, we're not going to forget this. Everybody's shaking their head no. It's not my fault. 
I'm being defensive right now. I'll get it to you. There is a link, I promise. But there's a sheet, and, and, and I want you to have it, and I don't want you to forget. Oh, somebody got it. Say, it's not, it's not my fault. Okay. All right. We did our best. I'm sorry. I'm owning my responsibility on that, okay? So here's the deal. That's one reason why we don't do this kind of stuff, is we just forget about it. We go about, we've got lives. We, we just do things that way, right? But I'll tell you, here's the other reason why we wind up, you know that old saying of we just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, thinking that it's going to change, and that, that's like the definition of insanity. You heard that, right? Um, the reason that that happens in marriages specifically that I have found is this reason right here. It's because most of us choose to do marriage alone. And here's what I mean by that. Your marriage, for most of us, your marriage is conducted kind of like an island. And it's you and your spouse, and that's the, only other, that's the only two people you ever let on the island. Or you're in the dating game. Let's say you're dating. You know, you're out there figuring it out, right? You're trying to find somebody. And it's just you and whoever you're dating. Or it's just you and Tinder, right? And you're just trying to find the right person and trying to do it that way. And what I mean is you're not talking to anybody else in your life about your life or about your relationships. It's just you and whoever's a part of that relationship. Or at least you don't do life with anybody who's close enough to you or anybody who loves you enough or who cares about your marriage enough, or your relationships enough, to say anything truthful to you. And the problem with that is, if you do start to get off track, and you do start to, uh, things start to get bad in your relationship, you start to do some of these four things. You start criticizing each other, you start stonewalling each other, you start fighting and defending and playing the victim, or whatever else it is that you do. You will get to the place, if you're on that island, where you will feel like you're right and they're wrong. I'm doing everything I know to do. I'm doing this thing the best that I know how. I am right. And it's her that's the problem. Or it's him that's the problem that's screwing it all up. And what you really need in your life is you need someone who knows you. You need someone who loves you enough to sit and listen to all your stuff Listen to your story, and then with all the grace and with all the gentleness that they have inside of them, you need someone to look you in the eye and say to you, what is wrong with you? Seriously. You need somebody to look at you and go, do you realize how hard it is to be married to you? You need somebody who will say, you need to go talk to him. You need to go talk to her. You need to apologize. You need to get over yourself. What I'm saying is, you need a community to do life with, or you'll never be able to see yourself clearly enough to stop doing the same crap over and over and over, wondering why your marriage ain't getting any better. See, I have some people in my life, I'm not perfect on this, okay? Trust me. My wife's listening to this, and she's going, why did they let him teach about marriage? <laughs> but I have some people in my life who I know that if I get into this pattern and I start doing one of those four things, they're going to tell me about it. They will not let me stray so far that they will watch me blow up my, my life or blow up my marriage. 
And that's why we tell you every single week, you need to be in community. That's why we say you need to go to the Next Step Center. You need to start getting involved with some people who can be that for you. So as we end this time together, I want to give you a minute where God can speak to you on that, whatever your next step is. I'm going to give you about a minute. We're going to have nothing else going on. We're just going to play some music for you to sit and think, and we're going to leave these four things up on the screen. And I want you to use this time to talk to God and ask him what your next step will be. And when we br- are we bringing these up on the screen, guys? When we do that, you take a, you take a picture of it. That'll take it. That, that way you'll take it home with you. And I want you to sit with God for a minute and think about what your next step is going to be. And maybe you need to go to the Next Step Center before you leave today. Maybe you need to sign up for the Next Steps class and you need to get around some people and say, I need help living this life and investigate what living with God in community is, is about. I don't know what your next step is, but God does. That's why you need to spend time with him on it. So after you're done with that, our band's going to come and they're going to lead us with one last song. So you sit, you deal with yourself and deal with God, and then we'll come back together.